breakfast very slowly late, so we're uh, beginning this seminar very slowly late as well, but we will finish uh, one time at half past ten, um, so you can get back to the rest of your day. Thank you for joining us for um, our seminar, Lessons from Wilberforce, Looking at Slavery in uh, this year, 2014. My name is Louise Deutsch, and I am the Human Trafficking and Sexual Exploitation Policy Officer for CARE. CARE is um, one of the sponsoring organisations of the Net Prayer Breakfast, and it's a real joy for us to be able to share with you this morning. CARE is a Christian organisation that works um, on a public policy level and also in uh, some local community initiatives um, all around issues to do with the dignity of human beings. Uh, everything that we do is founded on that Christian understanding that human beings are made in the image of God. Mm. And the issue of trafficking is something that we've been working on since 2006. And uh, I may be biased because it's my uh, subject area, but I struggle to think of something that's more of an affront to the dignity of a human being uh, than the issue of slavery and trafficking. Um, and so we've been working on this issue uh, since 2006. Our work on this is all at a policy level, we're not a service provider. Uh, we work with parliamentarians supporting them as they've been raising this issue in Parliament and also working to uh, encourage the government to develop their policies, strategies and laws in this area. Uh, just a little bit of background to set the scene for us. The International Labour Organization estimates that there are about 21 million people in forced labour around the world and that the illegal income generated by those 21 million people is 150 billion US dollars annually uh, in illegal profits. That's uh, a recent estimate that, that the IMF just published. Um, that's a huge contribution to the illegal economy and our uh, global economic situation and it's a huge number of people. In the UK um, it's, it's hard to get accurate statistics, uh, human trafficking and slavery is one of those things that happens under the radar so we only know what we know, <laughs> uh, to quote uh, Donald Bromsfeld, we don't know exactly what it is we don't know um, but we do know that there are around 2,000 um, individuals that we identify each year as um, people who have potentially been victims of trafficking. About a quarter of those are children each year, um, and a number of those are from the UK, people who've been trafficked internally and exploited from within our own country. Many of them are citizens of the European Union. In fact, across the whole European Union, the majority of identified victims of trafficking are citizens of the EU, uh, very much a regional sort of movement of people. Um, but some estimates have been made that perhaps there are around 5,000 people uh, in, who've been trafficked from forced labour in the UK at any given time, but um, as I said, uh, those are only estimates. This year, uh, as you may well have noticed in the news, is a significant year when it comes to addressing trafficking and slavery in the UK. We have the Modern Slavery Bill, which um, was mentioned a couple of times this morning, which was introduced into the House of Commons last week and is just beginning its passage through Parliament. 
Actually, we also have the promise of a bill in the Scottish Parliament. The Scottish Executive announced in March that they will be bringing a bill um, in the autumn following the referendum. And there is a private member's bill currently going through the Assembly in Northern Ireland as well, also to address this issue. It's a, a time where all across the country we're looking to improve our response to the question of slavery and trafficking. So we thought that given this important year really in this issue, it might be interesting to take a look back and look at the campaign that was fought by William Wilberforce and his colleagues uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century to address slavery in that era. Partly because, as was also mentioned already this morning, whenever there's a discussion about slavery and trafficking, Wilberforce's name comes up. And I thought, let's actually take a look and see what we can actually learn from him, not just throw his name around, um, but try to learn some lessons that he has to offer us. Of course, Wilberforce and his colleagues in the campaign were not perfect. They were of their era. Things don't necessarily translate across. Times, culture, understanding are all slightly different. However, I think there are some useful pointers for us. My first thing that I picked out is that sense of conviction that drove Wilberforce and the others in their campaign. Perhaps appropriately, as a seminar following a prayer breakfast, for Wilberforce and for many of the other campaigners, they were driven by their Christian understanding of the value of human life. That motivated them, it was core to their decision to fight against slavery in their era. Wilberforce said this in one of his speeches in the House of Commons on slavery. Never, never will we desist till we have wiped away this scandal from the Christian name released ourselves from the load of guilt under which we are present labour, and extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic, of which our posterity, looking back to the history of these enlightened times, will scarce believe it has been suffered to exist so long a disgrace and dishonour to this country. Turning a human being into a commodity and a means of deriving profit is completely in opposition to that central dignity that people have as bearers of the image of God. It struck me as I found that quote that if Wilberforce thought future generations would look back at his era and struggle to believe that society had allowed slavery to continue for so long, I wonder what he would make of the fact that we're still fighting it in our generation today. For Wilberforce and his colleagues, opposing slavery wasn't a mainstream view. That conviction drove them to challenge the establishment. Uh, the people who were opposing him in Parliament were influential and powerful. They had a vested interest in preserving the slave trade. It was part of the established order of the economy and the wealth of the nation. Our circumstance is different. Nowadays, we accept that exploitation of a human being is a bad thing. We have global treaties and conventions against slavery and trafficking. In countries across the world, these practices are illegal. But I do wonder whether we have our own cultural uh, bastions to challenge. Globally, we have a situation of economic hardship has already been spoken this morning. We have 
traditions and practices that remain and persist all across the world where bonded labour is still an accepted practice. Local power structures mean that every individual doesn't necessarily have the opportunity to express their full potential. I wonder too about our consumerist culture. In the West, our expectation to have what we want, our expectation to have things at as cheap a price as we can get them for. The pressure that that puts on our economy and on our businesses, production costs, desire for cheaper food and clothing. I wonder actually if there's a challenge to our culture there that our conviction should drive us forward as Wilberforce's drove him. The second thing that I think we can learn from the Wilberforce campaign is his persistence. That deep conviction about the justice of his cause gave Wilberforce the determination to keep going in spite of the opposition. He wrote this in 1814, As soon as I had arrived in my investigation of the slave trade, I confess to you so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear, that my own mind was completely made up for the abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its <coughs> abolition. Even in the face of defeat, he would still continue in the Commons to say that he would not give up on this fight. The issue was first brought by Wilberforce to Parliament in 1887, and it was another sort of 20 years until the Slave Trade Act was passed in 1807, and the actual abolition of all slavery didn't come until 1833. That's about 45 years of Justin Wilberforce's involvement. But way back before Wilberforce, Quakers and others had been raising this issue. This group of people were working on this matter for the long haul. There were setbacks in that campaign. Motions were defeated in Parliament. The French Revolution kicked off and changed all of the uh, local political landscape in the region. War with Napoleon changed people's attitudes. It instilled a, a more insecurity about the place of Britain in the global community. And those arguments led uh, into uh, a fear of what would happen if the slave trade were abolished and a more entrenched position was established. Wilberforce lost some of his key supporters in Parliament. Some of them changed their mind, some of them resigned, some of them died. Over the course of that period, it was a changing group of people. Wilberforce himself suffered from ill health. And yet, in the spite of all of these uh, obstacles, shall we say, he persisted because he was determined to reach his goal. For us here in 2014, the modern slavery bill in some ways feels like a bit of a milestone uh, of a journey of campaigning for, for a more strategic approach to this issue from government. But I think we'd be wise to learn from Wilberforce's experience. We may not achieve everything that we hope to achieve in this modern slavery bill. But we need to keep persevering, keep pushing and looking for our goal. 
Lorne Collard-Dullard uh, to my right is with us this morning and we'll be hearing from him later about his experience of persisting, shall we say, in raising this issue in Parliament over the last few years. The third thing I think we can learn from Wilberforce and his campaign is the issue of partnership. I've already mentioned it, uh, but Wilberforce was not working alone. In some ways, um, he's become a bit of a figurehead for the campaign, uh, but actually there are many people, names known and names unknown, who were part of that campaign. The abolition movement began way before Wilberforce was involved. There were key people working alongside him, such as Thomas Clarkson, who did such a great body of work gathering the evidence and presenting it to the public. There were lawyers who represented slaves who'd been freed and brought their issue into the courts. There was the role of William Pitt, the Prime Minister, whose friendship with Wilberforce was so key to Wilberforce making those early successes. There were several other MPs that were involved in the campaign. And there was the role of individuals uh, who had themselves experienced slavery, who were bold and brave and who published their stories and went across the country sharing their story in local meetings up and down Britain. And I think it's key for us to remember that it, it actually wasn't all about Wilberforce. Wilberforce had particular skills and a particular position in Parliament. He was well known as a great orator. I think if you wanted someone to make the case in Parliament eloquently, he was your man. But if you wanted someone to resource him with the information, then Thomas Clarkson was your man. Everybody involved in that campaign played a part. And we mustn't forget the populace, the general public. The uh, abolition of slavery campaign is often heralded as, as one of those campaigns that was the first of what we might call a modern campaign, a political campaign. There were mass movements, petitions signed by hundreds of people up and down the country, ordinary men and women, local meetings, book tours, little medallions published, uh, published uh, produced that people would wear or stick on the top of their snuff box that, that showed their support for the abolition movement. Campaign merchandise, if you like, those little rubber rib uh, bracelet things that we all seem to wear nowadays. Uh, they were first invented back in the anti-slavery campaign. The Quaker printing house produced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pamphlets and leaflets that were distributed across the whole country. Cities around Britain had their local abolition committee that drew in the great and the good, but also spread awareness amongst their local community. And this mass mobilisation played a part in giving support to Wilberforce and those in Parliament, but also in challenging that establishment hold on the preserve of slavery. I think the challenge for us in 2014, we're quite used now to the idea of a mass campaign. We're used to the idea of different groups playing their part. But in some ways, on this issue of slavery and human trafficking, um, we have a problem in that there are so many of us. <laughs> there are many different organisations. You probably are sitting there thinking you could name four or five different charities who work and campaign on this issue. 
Perhaps for us, partnership is a different challenge. It's not about finding partners, it's about finding the ways to work together successfully. We don't want to give our parliamentarians confusing information. We want to be able to work together. I think we want also to help support different parliamentarians and help them to find ways to work together. I know that Lord McCall is very um, keen on the way that he's been able to work with uh, members in the House of Lords from different parties, that cross-party coalition on some of the work he's been doing, coming together uh, on this central issue. I think we also have perhaps a word of caution in this. It's been mentioned already in another uh, arena by Bishop Justin. We actually are looking at the Modern Slavery Bill in the final parliament before a general election. Um, my word of caution is to those of us who will be engaging with our parliamentarians and also for our parliamentarians is to resist the temptation for scoring party political points. It's very tempting in the run-up to an election to view everything through that prism. And I think it's really encouraging the way that so far the Modern Slavery Bill has had that cross-party support. And I really, I really hope that we can preserve that into the future. And I would encourage you, if you're going to be contacting your MP, to, to do so in that, in that manner over this issue in the coming year, that we can try to build that support. Because actually, this bill will only come into force a few months or weeks before the general election. We potentially have a situation where the government who will oversee its implementation will not be the same government who oversaw its passage through Parliament. And we, we owe it to those people we are hoping to serve through the, through the legislation to work together on it. The fourth of my five points uh, that I think we can learn from Wilberforce is about the issue of gathering the evidence, about being as informed as we can be on this issue, whether we're an individual who wants to speak to our Member of Parliament, whether we're a parliamentarian, whoever we are, I think um, we can learn from that work of Thomas Clarkson, who went around the country he interviewed people who worked on the slave ships. He spoke to people who'd experienced slavery. He published documentation. There were people like the Reverend James Ramsey who'd served in the colonies and seen firsthand the experience of the slaves on the plantations, who was so affected by what he saw that he returned to the UK and shared his testimony. And also I've already mentioned that personal testimony of some of those who themselves had experienced slavery. People like Lauda Piano, Cogno Cuano, and others. They were really key players in sharing the truth of what slavery meant. At the time of Wilberforce and this campaign, much of the slavery was in the colonies and the plantations around the British Empire. For many ordinary people in this country, they had no direct personal experience. There was no News 24, no pictures coming from the colonies of the experience of slavery. It was that information gathered and disseminated that enabled them to speak and sign petitions with knowledge. And I think for us, 
that first-hand testimony is really important. And we need to continue to look for ways to share that perspective, the perspective of the victim and the survivor of human trafficking with our parliamentarians and in our parliamentary process. We've got, um, to my left, Ben Cooley is here from Hope for Justice and he'll be speaking to us later about that issue of how we bring that perspective in to what we do in legislation. My final lesson that I think we can learn from Wilberforce is, is that of um, a pragmatism and an understanding of parliamentary practice and a political astuteness. The campaign uh, as it began was, was hoping, was determined to see the abolition of slavery. But that was a long way off in terms of anything that could be achieved in Parliament. What they tried to do instead was to start by abolishing the slave trade, the practice of buying and selling, the practice of moving people from Africa to the colonies. They started there, and that took some time to achieve. As they did that, they started first of all by having evidence sessions in Parliament. There were debates, there were motions. Um, when I first started working uh, in connection with, with Parliament, I discovered so many things that happen in Parliament that I was unaware of, but which play a part in the culture and the knowledge and understanding of what goes on in Parliament. Motions, debates, things that are not pieces of legislation, but they bring an issue to the wider attention of parliamentarians and can help gather support around an issue. And that's what Wilberforce did. He used all of those parliamentary tools in order to raise this issue with his colleagues. In fact, um, just before they were able to pass the abolition of the slave trade bill, um, about two years before, they worked on a bill and, and it was passed into law that abolished the slave trade in terms of foreign ownership. And that was such a, such a politically astute move because this was around the time there was this insecurity to do with other countries and Britain's place in the world and the French Revolution. And actually, they were able to tap in to those insecurities in order to get the first step towards abolishing the slave trade by outlawing the, the trading uh, with France and other nations. I think for us, this is something to remember. As I said earlier, we may not get everything we hope for out of the modern slavery bill. The parliamentary session is short, parliamentary timetables are squeezed, and I think perhaps there's a lesson for us about where do we need to be pragmatic? How do we decide? Where should we reach for the stars? And sometimes perhaps settle for something a little lower, knowing that we can come back and come back and come back and keep pushing for those long-term goals. How do we balance those short-term objectives with that ultimate goal, which must be to see the end of slavery and trafficking in this country and around the world. So, in conclusion, we've heard a lot of things about this modern slavery bill from government ministers and from others saying that, that we will lead the world with this bill. And I think it is an opportunity for us to do something great, to set 
the standard for how we expect to address trafficking and slavery in this country. But I think if we're going to do that, then we have some valuable lessons that that Wilberforce campaign can teach us about sticking to our convictions, about persisting in the face of obstacles, about being politically astute and understanding how to use the system, but also remembering to work together with others and to listen to the voice of the victim. Thank you.
to put this issue on the uh, agenda politically? Well, um, there are all sorts of devices. Um, you can uh, initiate a debate on the subject, which I did. Um, you can put amendments down on the back of other bills, which I did. <laughs> and that's a very uh, easy way of doing things. And then the final thing was an EU directive came over against uh, slavery, which was a good directive. But as you know, politically, um, EU is not very much in favour, so it was chucked out. So I took it, or we took it, I say, and um, put it into a private member's bill without saying what it was. <laughs> and, and they fell for it. <laughs> and and, and uh, the Prime Minister adopted that's really the way it, uh, it started. So being as wise as certain mm. as I <laughs> And um, uh, one thing I know that you particularly worked on is the whole issue of child trafficking and child trafficking guidelines. Mm. Can you tell me something? Yes. Well, one of the things that struck us was that these um, poor abused people would, would be trafficked into this country not knowing what was going on. And uh, they would then be put in brothels or um, cannabis farms and so on. And then the police would raid them and they'd be taken to court and then put in jail. And the whole thing seemed to me so appalling. Often they didn't speak English, they certainly didn't know their way around the legal system. So it seemed to us that what they needed was somebody to look after them. A sort of legal guardian or an advocate, whatever you like to call it, but they needed somebody who knew what they were talking about, who could protect them and go with them. And, um, and be, we needed them a lot in the moment they were identified as traffic children. Um, so that's really why we had a bee in our bonnet about that and uh, got on with it. And, and you were one of the relatively select few to have been asked to serve on the uh, Joint Committee on the Draft uh, Modern Slavery. Oh yes. Well, uh, can you tell us something about that and some of the battles that uh, well, that was quite funny, really. I mean, you have to see the funny side of things and have a giggle about them. Uh, there was this amendment that we put down, and um, uh, I had four names on it. The Labour, the leader of the Labour um, people in the, in the Lords, Jan, Jan, what's the name? John, Jan Royal, marvellous lady, and uh, Lib Den, a barrister called um, Lord Carlyle, and uh, me as a Conservative, and then uh, Elizabeth Butler Sloss as a crossbencher, one of the most brilliant um, judges we've had. So we had four on it, you see. So it was quite a powerful uh, amendment. And um, I uh, decided, uh, we decided we would put it to the vote. Now, apparently, I didn't know this, but you really had to warn the government what you were going to do. I thought it never occurred to me to warn them what I was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> Take them by surprise. <laughs> and so we did. And they were furious. Um, so we learned to go along. But anyway, <laughs> that's how it uh, went on. A vote that was very narrowly lost. Narrowly narrow lost. So we, we bided our time and we kept putting amendments on various bills <laughs> and And then the final. Uh, Final battle, we actually defeated the government by 98 votes. So they quite something. And I, I think it's not to lose any sleep about this, but just to enjoy the fight.